And with that, before I welcome Pastor Ira up, please watch this fun video. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many, and he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises, and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah, saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful, even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel and obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods. They allow horrible injustice. And so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure, somehow. Yeah, they called it the New Covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus, is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who was able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David. And so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. That's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man. That Jesus is no mere human, but rather God becomes human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him.
So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who are becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. Isn't that cool? Good morning. I just love that, that video. It's kind of like, uh, it reminded me of that Saturday morning uh, cartoon called I'm Just a Bill. It like totally explained. How many of you are old enough to know that? Well, the rest of you, you're young. That's good. Thank you, Joe. Hey, it's great to be here today. Uh, I'm excited to talk about this subject. Uh, Jody asked me to because of that very video is that, and this very concept that the, the covenants of God throughout history are fulfilled in Christ. And for someone who has, has walked in that history, just as a Jew, it's, it's been incredibly pro- profound for me. And so I wanted to be able to share some of my thoughts, my ideas about this related to the scriptures and how they applied to us today. Uh, you know, it's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, fathers. You know, I, I, yesterday I went to the market and I, w- I was talking with the, the checker and and, and he's a, he was a new checker, and he said his, his manager told, uh, told him, yeah, Father's Day is kind of like any other day at the supermarket. Now, Mother's Day is kind of like Thanksgiving. <laughs> but father, so, so the guy behind me, we were both in line, and he was a dad too, and he said, yeah, we should start some kind of uh, Father's Day enhancement type of event where, where Father's Day becomes bigger and bigger and more important. But no, I, I really get appreciated on Father's Day. Actually, we celebrated it on, um, on Thursday going to sushi because my daughter's uh, going to leave the state, so we're kicking her out. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so let's pray because uh, this is a, a, a wonderful, wonderful topic to look at. When Jesus says that he's not going to abolish the law, but he's going to fulfill the law, and the prophets, it is a, uh, when, when, I, when I hear those words, I see something that has a vision of thousands of years of the promises of God. And here Jesus says is, I am it. I am it. And, and so let's ask God to make this real for us. Because the more real this becomes for, to us today, the more change we're going to be in our lives. The more we're going to have to share the gospel with people because this is fantastic news that God, that Jesus Christ himself, God himself has fulfilled the law and the prophets. Would you pray with me? Lord, we just come before you right now. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be here. We pray that ears would be open, hearts would be open to what you have to say today. And Lord, I have words that that you've prepared, but Lord, your spirit moves in people's hearts. And I ask that you would move, Lord, whatever it is, whatever you need to say to them and to me, Lord, that you would do that according to your plan and purpose. And that today people would come to faith in Christ and those that do know you would, would have a radical encounter with you related to this amazing, amazing promise that you have fulfilled. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read the scripture. It's coming up. Yep, there it is. Okay. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. 
So I want to give a little context to where this is in, in, in Jesus' sermon here in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, just a context for the nation of Israel, those that he's talking to. You have to understand that this is an occupied nation, right? Israel is occupied. It's been occupied for about 100 years by Rome. And they are crying out for someone that would come and take back the kingdom that has been that they they think is rightfully theirs and according to scripture is rightfully theirs they're praying for this king to come right and so they have anticipation they have anticipation because they know in the scriptures they know the word of god they know the promises of god they know the law and the prophets and and so they have anticipation because they know that in those scriptures are the very words that the king of kings will come, the Messiah will come. And so they are anxiously awaiting a king that will take back the kingdom that has been taken from them by Rome. It's a very practical thing that they're looking for. Also, within the context of the sermon, we know that uh, you've just heard sermons that talk about being salt, being light. That those were the words that Jesus had before. I now believe that what he's doing now is clarifying. How do you be salt? How do you be light? You can't just make light in yourself. It just doesn't happen, right? It happens because God does something and light happens. A light bulb just doesn't turn on by itself. A light bulb turns on because the power behind it is released in a powerful way and the light turns on, right? And that's what happens with us. And Jesus wants to clarify that. And so it's, it's, it's these words that he's speaking to us. And then he wants to also prepare people because he says that do not think. He starts this section with do not think. Hmm, I'm a little worried about that beginning. How about you? You know, the, the Bible says that our thoughts are not his thoughts. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Do not think. He's, he's trying to stop us right here from thinking the old way. We have a lot of trouble changing the way we think. Have you noticed that? You can just see it in our society. It's, it's not impossible, but it is really hard to change the way you think. The way you view the world. What you expect. And so when Jesus is saying, do not think, he is, he's telling all of us, hey, be prepared because I have something important to tell you that is not what you are currently thinking. It is not what you are currently believing. This is something that you must hear. You must hear fresh and you must allow the spirit of God to move on you so that you could be changed by it. Don't expect this to be the same old thing that I'm telling you. The same old thoughts that you have in your head. So he starts with these words, this warning to Israel, who he is speaking to. Do not think. So can we, can we have that open mind when, as we read this together? Because he's speaking to us too. Yes? He is. Now, we're going we're gonna to do something a little different. And, uh, uh, in, in Central Valley School of Ministry, also in our summit class, we do something called verse mapping. It's something that I've, I've done a long time. It just has a new name that Liz gave it, which I love. Thank you, Liz. But um, uh, the idea is to look at a verse and, and to see what the fact is and then what the prep propositions are that happen because of it, all right? So because of that, we're going to look at the fact first, which happens to be the very last part of the scripture, okay? So we're going to start at the end, and then we're going to work backwards. Does that sound all right? Have you ever done that before? You get to do it today, aren't you glad? So we're going to, we're going to start with verse 20. This is the fact, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. That is a fact. Jesus is saying that. You have to be more righteous. Your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. That sounds scary. 
The Pharisees, they were like professional religious people, right? They, they kind of focused all their energy on this. Let me tell you a little about Pharisees. The name means separated ones. So they separated themselves apart. And they lived in communities for the purpose of seriously trying to obey the law. Any of you do that? I don't know. We don't have like a commune here, do we? Maybe we do. It's the Kligman house. <laughs> don't tell them I said that. They're not here. They deserve it. <laughs> Kligmans have 12 kids, if you didn't know. Okay. So they're separated in communities. They, they were looked upon as authoritative interpreters of the law. All right? They opposed the secularization of the faith. In other words, they kept strict to it, and they didn't allow the outside forces of morality, the change over time based on opinion or, or public perception. You can understand that happens today even, right? They, they did not let that happen. They said, no, we must go by the word of God. Sounds good, right? All these things sound good. Uh, they, they followed all the laws of the Bible. They fasted two times a work, week. Two times a week they fasted for a full day. You know, we, do, we talk about fasting in, in, uh, in Summit, in our Summit class, which we'll have this fall as well, on, uh, on spiritual transformation. And, and most people have never done that. These guys do it twice a week. Twice a week they fast. Then they have fixed hours of prayer every day. Every day, you wake up, you pray. In the afternoon, you stop what you're doing, and you pray. In the evening, at dinner time, you pray. Before you go to bed, you pray. These were specific times that the Pharisees had to pray. They seem pretty righteous, right? Don't you think? I mean, right now, I'm thinking to myself, gee, I wish I could do all that, right? Is that you? Well, they went just a little further because they thought that the law was so important that they obey. What they did was they decided we can't break the law. We can't break the law. What can we do to prevent us from breaking the law? Well, what they did was they added to the law. They added to it. So let's say here's an example. Here is the Sabbath. The Sabbath starts at sundown. Sundown starts at 5. Okay, so if you work on the Sabbath, you're breaking the law. Yes? And so what they would do is they would say, okay, the Sabbath, sundown's at 5 o'clock today. We are going to start the Sabbath at 3 o'clock and stop working at 3 o'clock. So there's no chance of us breaking the law. That's what they would do with all things, with all of the laws. There are 613 laws. That's enough to kill you right there, right? But think of it that they actually made 613 laws and they added to them in order to make sure that they were paying attention to all these laws. It's crazy, huh? But this is what they did. So Jesus points out to them, look, not even their righteousness is enough for you to enter the kingdom of God. It almost sounds hopeless. Here are these people. They are professionally focusing on obeying the law, being righteous, and Jesus is saying it's not enough. There's a lot of religions out there that say you need to do the right thing. You need to obey the law. You, the obey the law meaning the religious law that, that is being proclaimed, where, whichever religion it is. And that in so doing, then God is pleased by you. Christianity, the way God has set this up within the context of historic Judaism and Christianity, is the only place to teach you that you can't do that. So you can go to somewhere else for that divine help. Amen? The Pharisees were externally righteous, but they failed to internalize the heart of the law. And that is the key that we're going to look at today. When, when, when Jesus talks about 
Well, before we get to that, let's look at Isaiah 64. This is an amplified version, so it has a few parentheses in it to, uh, to really explain things. It says, For we have become like one who is ceremonially unclean, like a leper, and all our deeds of righteousness are like filthy rags. We all wither and decay like a leaf, and our wickedness, our sin, our injustice, our wrongdoing, like the wind takes us away, carrying us far from God's favor toward destruction. This is what it says in Isaiah. This is the picture that we have of who we are. And, and, and what is this picture? It, it talks about being ceremonially unclean. Uh, that means unable to enter in the, into the presence of God. Isaiah is saying by the inspiration of God, by the breath of God, that that we and ourselves are unable to enter into the presence of God because we are unclean. The description is that of a leper. Leprosy was treated very seriously in those days. In the Bible and also in those days, it was very dangerous. And, And people were shunned. They were put in leper colonies. They were separated away because people were fearful. And those that had leprosy truly were unable to go into the presence of God. The the kind of uncleanness that's described here is a spiritually, legally unclean type of uncleanness. Under God's judgment... Leprosy started with the skin and the peripheral nervous system. And then it hit the hands and the feet and the face and the earlobes. And it started disfiguring all these different parts of the body. And and then it, it started disfiguring the skin and the bones. And it twisted the limbs and curling the fingers inward. Tumor-like growths grew called lepromas. There's a word for you. Lepromas that can form on the skin and and the respiratory tract. How painful that must have been. But the biggest problem was is is that it did great damage to the external nervous system. So, So all the nerves in the person's body, they would start dying. Right? And and so they they wouldn't know if they put their hand in a fire if it was hot or not. And so the description that's given in in, in what I was reading, it, it says that they wouldn't even know if, if they were asleep and, and a rat ate their finger. They wouldn't even know because there was no feeling in their fingers anymore. This is the, this is the description that, that is used in the scripture for, for the uncleanness that we have before God. The only way I could look at it in a contemporary form, pardon me for this example, is that... Uh, in, in, in a high school hockey locker room, it, if you've never been in one, you almost pass out. Because it is tradition that you do not wash your hockey uniform for the entire season. And, and so you can walk into that locker room. You can smell that locker room a block away. And then you walk in and it's, it's horrific. And it, it was the best example I can give. I don't know if you can relate to it. Anybody relate to hockey like that? (laughs) It's a pretty crazy thing. I don't know how that smell actually happens, but it does. It's not even an earthly smell. I don't know where it comes from. (laughs) So then Jesus is saying, or or, or in the scripture in Isaiah, it says, all of our deeds are, are of righteousness. It's not saying some of our deeds the, the scripture in Isaiah says, all of our deeds of righteousness, plural, it extends to everything that we do, everything that we think, are unclean. And then as filthy rags, filthy rags, you know, that's an, a nice way of saying menstrual cloths. This is the description that God gives for our righteous acts without him, without a change of heart. Romans 3.23 says, all 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all fallen sin. We all smell like that locker room in the heavenly uh, kingdom. We all do without Christ. So Jesus, in him saying that you will not enter the kingdom of God unless your righteousness is greater than the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He, he, it's kind of like politically correct for, for saying, you ain't coming in the kingdom. You ain't coming into my house. It, it, it's like, you know, when your kids play and, 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 and all that mud outside and you, and you say, don't you come in until you clean yourself off. That's what God is saying. He says, my house is a clean house and, and it needs to be clean and you can't come in like that. But aren't you glad there's an answer for this? Right? It's good to know the history. It's good to know what Jesus is saying here. He is stating a fact that unless your righteousness is greater than that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Our righteousness must exceed even that of the Pharisees who went to such great lengths. Let's look at this next scripture. This is the next part of our section in in, in uh, in, in Jesus' sermon. Therefore, so this is the fact. The fact is you have to, your righteousness has to exceed those of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to, to enter the kingdom of God. All right? Therefore, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, everyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly would be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Truly, I say to you, this is Jesus' words. This is Jesus' signature words. No other teacher in that day ever used these words. Truly, I say to you. 31 times in Matthew, um, I forgot how many times, in, oh, in John, 25 times with a double truly, truly, which means, guess what? Amen. So be it. What Jesus is saying here needs to be looked on with special care because he is saying basically, thus saith the Lord. This is absolutely the case. Truly, truly, amen and amen. We have this terrible circumstance. We have to have our righteousness better than those of the, of the Pharisees. They, have, they made a profession of being righteous. How are we going to ever do that? We have to get out of this situation. Something has to change. So Jesus is specifically saying nothing is going to change as far as the law is concerned. It is not going anywhere, nowhere. Now, this is a great affirmation of the word of God. Jesus is saying, the word of God stands forever. Amen? If someone tells you that somehow through history, through time, through error, through translation, through any of this stuff, the word of God doesn't stand, Jesus Christ's words say no. The word of God stands forever. And you can trust it. Nothing will disappear. So therefore, we need to know that we can't get out of this. This is an issue. The law isn't going away. We can't subvert it and go another way. We have to address the law. We can't vote it out. And vote something else in, like we try to do here in America, right? Let's look at this law, because it, it is profound that it, that it has made it through all these years. The only way it could is by divine providence. But let me tell you a little about the scribes, the people that, that wrote down the law from year to year, day to day, decade to decade. Let me tell you a little about them. They had to use clean animal skins. They could not use anything else. And they had to wrap it in clean animal skins as well. Each column of writing could have no less than 48 
lines and no more than 60 lines. There was a rule for how many lines could be in each column. If you looked at a scroll of the Torah, I should have had a picture of that. I don't. Um, as you unroll the, the, the two pillars of the Torah, you will see that there are columns, and each column is, is what I'm describing here right now. The ink must be black, and it is made from a very specific recipe that God gave for this purpose. They must verbalize every word aloud as they're writing it. Do you think that might help them concentrate a little more? I think so. They must wipe the pen and wash themselves every time they write the word Yahweh. Do you know many times the word Yahweh, which is the, is the unspoken name for God in, in the Old Testament? Do you know how many times it is, spoke, it is written in the Old Testament? 7,000. 7,000 times they wiped the pen and washed their bodies and wrote the most holy name that could never be spoken because it was too holy. 7,000 times. They were clean. (laughs) That's a lot of showers. OCD, I would think, right? There must be a review within 30 days And if as many as three pages required corrections, the whole thing had to be thrown out. The whole thing had to be thrown out. The letters, words, and paragraphs had to be counted, and and everything had to line up with the original that, that it was being copied from. Everything had to line up. If it didn't, it had to be thrown out. This is the way the word of God was revered, was kept and God preserved. When, when Jesus is saying, not the smallest letter, he's talking about a little letter. It's a teeny little letter. I should have put this on a slide too. It's called the Yod. It's just a, a little, little curl like that. A teeny, teeny little letter. He's saying not a single letter can be changed. The smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And then he says, not, not even the smallest stroke a lot, of, uh, a lot of translations use the word tittle, tittle for that. It's, it's, it's a part of a letter that changes the letter, all right? It's smaller than yod. It's just a little, like this, on a letter that changes the letter into another letter, another meaning. And neither of those can be changed. Jesus said, you cannot change it, not The smallest letter, not the smallest stroke can change. It will stand forever. So what are we to do? We have the crushing weight of 613 laws on our shoulders. That's why Jews complain a lot. (laughs) We all do, right? It's not just Jews. We all have this law upon our shoulders. 613 laws. You could imagine in the day of Jesus, Jesus is saying, you need to be more righteous than the most righteous people you know who've made a profession of it. And he's saying, not a single law is going to go away. And you could just hear (laughs) right on the backs of his listeners the weight of the law. It is unchanging. Not one little letter, not one little stroke is going to change. What are we to do with this crushing weight of the law? Nothing, he's saying, Jesus is saying, can be set aside. Nothing can be overlooked. Every law is in place and will stay in place. Even worse news is that, (laughs) you think it could get worse? Even worse news is Jesus is moving into the next section in his sermon, which we'll be starting next week, which talks about hate being murder. It's talking about lust being adultery. It's talking about loving your enemies and the full extent of the law, how it extends out into the heart like that. 
So he needs to clarify this now because he is about to tell us how, what is the heart of the law. The, the Pharisees didn't get it, but we need to get it. And, and so he wants to clarify it to us right now. And so we get to the end of our scripture, which is the beginning part of it. And therefore, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Catalio is that word, abolish. Do not think that I have come to destroy, end the law, annul the law, declare invalid the law. The law ain't going anywhere. It's staying. The law and the prophets, that's the Tanakh. It's the, the Torah, the five books. It's the prophets and it's the writings like Psalms and the wisdom writings and things like that. This, Jesus is saying all of this will not be destroyed. It will not be abolished. And then he says, but I have come to fulfill them. Fulfill them. Satisfy them. Complete them. I have not come. This is kind of like a a free way of saying what Jesus was saying here. I have not come to set aside the Old Testament, but to bring the fulfillment to which it pointed, for no part of it can ever be set aside, but all must be fulfilled as it is now being fulfilled in my ministry and my teaching and my life. You know, I was just blown away as I was going through this because I I just thought of the fact that, you know, wouldn't it have been easier for Jesus to have said, okay, you know those laws that are, you know, that are, I don't know, related to food. Let's just, let's just forget those. I don't need to fulfill those. It would be, make it so much easier for Jesus, right? He didn't have to fulfill all those, right? But no, he, he wanted every single law, 613 laws, to be fulfilled in his life, his ministry, his teaching, and his death. John 19 says, later, this is Jesus on the cross, later, knowing that everything had now been finished. And so that the scripture would be fulfilled. The law, the prophets, the writings would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk on the hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Jesus knew that he was here to fulfill the law and the prophets in every dimension that fulfillment can have. He fulfilled it. I remember when I realized this. I remember before I I came to faith in Christ and my friends were showing me the law, the prophets, showing me Isaiah 53, showing me Daniel, showing me Ezekiel, showing me Psalms that, that were prophetic about the Messiah and me looking at this And just seeing and realizing the incredible impact that thousands of years of law being fulfilled in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Messiah, the Savior has on my life today. It's amazing. to look at the scriptures that are related to the fact that there needs to be a a blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, and then to look at Isaiah 53 and see 
that by his shed blood we are healed is mind-blowing. I know, I know it's powerful in a Jewish mind. It's radical and mind-blowing that this is what Jesus did. He didn't take this all away. He didn't say, okay, we're going to start now. Get rid of all this stuff. He couldn't couldn't abolish the law because he couldn't deny himself. He's a holy, righteous God. He had to fulfill the law. Fulfill it. Romans 8 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering for us. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be met in us. And here's the crux. This is it. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, a perfect offering for us because it must happen in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met not just in Christ, but in us. In us. Second Corinthians says, God made him who had no sin be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the most radical concept in the whole world. And I'll tell you, the people that get it the least sometimes are Christians. Because somehow we think, okay, God loves us, that's nice, and now we owe it to him to to make sure we're good. We need to be good. And the weight of the law comes right back on. But I tell you, that's not it. The righteousness of God, when God sees us, he sees us as righteous because of what Christ did. That sin you committed yesterday, that habitual issue that you're facing, not faking, facing. God doesn't see that when he sees you. He sees Christ. Because we have become the righteousness of God through Christ. This is radically transforming. This is real Christianity. This is the grace of God. The grace of God. Therefore, what does fulfilled look like for us? Hebrews 8 says, But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will not be like the, it will not be like the covenant I made with the ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. We saw that in the video. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with my people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Jesus Christ fulfilling the law brings the new covenant in where the law is now inscribed in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, and starts transforming us from the inside out. Religion is change from the outside in. It doesn't work in case you haven't noticed. Being changed from the inside out works. It works. 
That's God's plan. A changed heart. How did Jesus fulfill the law? All scripture bears witness to him. John 5 says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. John 5.46 says, If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. All scriptures bear witness to Christ. All promises of God in scripture find fulfillment in him. 2 Corinthians 1.20, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. All the promises of God were amened by Christ. Fulfilled by Christ for us. All the law was perfectly kept by Christ, and he became for us the Lamb of God. Romans 10.4, for Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. All blood sacrifice for sin ceased because of his sacrifice. Hebrews 9.12, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus attaining eternal redemption for us. He fulfilled the law so that we could be free, so that the new covenant could be spoken into our lives and we could be changed from the inside out, but always looked upon by God because of the blood of Jesus Christ as righteous, as righteous. A father had two kids. One said, hey, I think I'm going to go to New York City and rebel. I'm going I'm to take all the money I have and I'm going to go to New York City and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just... Figure out my life on my own. Forget you, family. I'm going across the country. And he went from California to New York. And he got a job at a restaurant. And he went to that restaurant and he started making a boatload of money. And along with that boatload of money, he started realizing, oh, money can buy fun things. And so this son started like, buying drugs and doing all kinds of crazy things, living a crazy sexual life. This son went all over New York and spent probably $100,000 a year because I made more than that. More than that. Oh, I told you it's me now. <laughs> well, you got the point. $100,000 a year. And he spent it all on partying. Spent it all on being with the right people and buying the right things. He used to buy $500 shirts, $1,000 shoes. Easy to do in New York, believe me. And then, then he decided, oh, let's go to California and finish this raucous. And so went to California and just went crazy again. And then at one point, this son sat down on his bed and he looked at his life and he came to his senses. He saw people dying around him from drug, adose, uh, drug overdoses. He had nothing to say for himself. He had nothing after all those years to hold on to. He was beaten down by the world, depressed, seeing therapists, trying to figure out what's wrong with his life once again. And he turned to go back to his father. And out of, out of his peripheral, most extreme peripheral vision, he saw that his father was there and grabbed him up and accepted him. And as the story goes, it goes for this one too. This great robe was put upon him, a ring was put on his finger, and a great banquet happened. This is the life that God gives us because of his grace, 
because of the fact that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law, we are able to walk in this extreme understanding of what grace is. It's not just, oh, I forgive you. Now, you better behave yourself. It's, no, it's so much greater than that. It's the best robe you could put on. It's the most beautiful ring that you could wear on your finger. It's the greatest party you can have with the greatest fatted calf that you can have. The most wonderful meat that you can have. This is the grace that God has given us because he has fulfilled the law and the prophets. Is that awesome? And so I thought to myself, like, what, what should I do? Yeah, we can praise the Lord for that. So, so I thought to myself, what should I do to kind of show people what, what this is like, right? And, and so I thought to myself, I need to find, like, the, one of the best foods that I could find. One of the, the best food that, that's in this world. I need, to, I need to find it, and I need to, I need to share it. Share it with you. And so, (laughs) Oreos. You guys, I love Oreos. This is one of the greatest foods there is, you guys. I need a few people up here to help me pass these out. Because let me tell you about Oreos, all right? I know I have every theory about Oreos. I've been eating Oreos forever. I have I have Oreos. Just pass these out to people, all right? I'm going to tell them about it. You guys need to you guys need to have an Oreo because this is a great feast and this is the greatest food you'll ever eat right here. Okay, maybe not the greatest, but it's one of my favorites. Okay, and so what I did with Oreos was I hope we have enough. What what I did with Oreos is I came up with like this whole theory about that you need to dunk it in hot, sweet tea for eight seconds. Nine seconds, it falls to the bottom and becomes useless. Eight seconds is perfect. You put it in your mouth and it just melts. It's like perfect. Now, because of all the different flavors of Oreos, do you think I'm an Oreo fanatic? Now, because of all the different flavors of Oreos, I'm making my own. So I came up with one. You cannot tell anybody about this, Okay. Swear that you won't. (laughs) I came up with a flavor of Oreo that is killer, you guys. It is killer. It is cookie butter Oreos. Now, you know what cookie butter is? How many of you know what cookie butter is? It's this this cookie from Europe that is kind of like a butter cookie, and it's mushed up like peanut butter, but it doesn't taste like peanuts. It's like this great cookie in a spread. It is killer. And I've been making cookie butter Oreos. <laughs> so guess what I did last week? Last week, I, I emailed Nabisco, and I told them about it. <laughs> I did. So I just wanted to share with you this great banquet that God has for us. This is one of the greatest foods ever made, is an Oreo. And it lasts forever. I don't know why, but it does. <laughs> anyway. This is not communion, by the way. (laughs) But I wanted you to get that God has so much goodness for us. It is by Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, that we enter into this incredible covenant with God. And we are set free to live a new life to please God in a way that we could never do with the law. Aren't you glad? I want to close with this story, and then, and then we're going to pray. This last, this last Monday, it's my day off, and I, and I got a text. I got a text from someone who, who has attended our church, and uh, they said that um, their, their father-in-law was, was dying. And uh, he, uh, I, I thought, oh, on my day off. It's a bad day to die on my day off. And, and, um, and I thought, no, I, I have to do this. I sense the Lord in this. I have to do it. Of course, if anyone's dying, we're going we're gonna to come see you no matter what day it is. But, but I, I just knew there was something about this that was very, very particular. And I went to their house, and I spent a few minutes with the family, and then we all went in the room. 
And they told me this story that the day before, he was, he was doing pretty good. He was already on hospice. They knew he was dying. But the day before, they actually went out. He asked to go out for ice cream. They went out for ice cream. They went shopping. He was pretty peppy. And then in the morning, he was mostly unconscious. And that's when, that's when I got called. And so he knows the Lord, which is a good thing. And I just I talked with the family a little, and then I, I needed to pray for him. And when you're praying for a person, you're also praying for their family at that point. And I just laid hands on, on his head, and I just prayed for him. And at that point, I got the most incredible, incredible sensation that this man had absolutely nothing on his plate. He had nothing weighing him down. He had no regret. He was completely and utterly forgiven. And the righteousness of God was applied to his life. The word I used there for them was, he is totally light. There is nothing holding him back. Not one drop holding him back. And I prayed that prayer and I talked about the grace of God because there were those in the room that did not understand it. And I just wanted to affirm it to him who, you know, hearing is the last thing to go when you're dying. So it's very possible he was hearing me as well. And, and I just said, you know, because of the grace of God, not by any works that you did, you are entering into the presence of God with the greatest of peace. And we prayed that prayer. And then we walked out. And I thought to myself, well, he probably has another day because he really wasn't that far along in this process. That's what I thought. Two minutes later, he died and went to be with the Lord. You guys, you have to have this. That man, Vernon, had the understanding that it wasn't by his righteousness, but by Christ's. And because of that, it was the easiest transition to eternal life I have ever seen. The most profound moment of, of the grace of God lifting him up and being with God himself. We all need to have that. So why don't you stand with me right now? We're going to pray for two groups. One, one group are, are people that you, you're, you're a Christian and you struggle with guilt you struggle with the fact that you're not good enough. You're like a Pharisee in that sense. You've, you're working, working, working. And you just need to release it to God and let, let, let yourself know that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. Amen? So anything that's lacking in you has been filled up by Christ. Is there anyone here like that? Anyone struggling with that? Amen. And then there might be some people here today. We're inviting lots of people to come and to hear the, the great news of Jesus Christ. And this is great news, you guys. That you cannot do anything in your own strength, but because of what Jesus did when he fulfilled the law, we are forgiven. We have become the righteousness of God. And if, if you don't know Jesus or you've walked away and you, and you want to return back to Jesus, I just want you to raise your hand right now. You want to give yourself to God again. Is there anyone here like that? Anyone here at all? Amen. Anyone else? Anyone else? Amen. I see that other hand too. We're going to pray a prayer. and We're going to do it all. For, we're going to join those that raise their hands. I want to encourage you to pray because this is a prayer for all of us, all right? Just repeat it after me. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that in my strength I can do nothing. But because of your grace, I am forgiven. I confess that I have sinned, but I ask that you apply your great sacrifice on the cross 
into my life and I would be forgiven and become the righteousness of God. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Lord, we also pray for those that, that struggle with guilt, struggle with the, the sin-confess cycle that, that, that so many of us struggle with as well, Lord. That they would have a fresh understanding of your grace, your fulfillment in their life. That when you see them, there is nothing lacking because of the grace of Jesus Christ. I pray that their identity would be rooted not in the fact that they are a sinner, but that they are the righteousness of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. God bless you guys. Have a great day. Happy Father's Day.